Is there anything better than when a story has a happy ending? Uh, if you ask my wife Elise, the answer is definitely no. There is nothing better than when the guy gets the girl, when the girl gets the guy. Uh, many of us live for the happy endings. I might be a bit loud, Josh. Could, could you turn me down just a little? <laughs> um, many of us live for the happy endings. Our hearts are a bit pulled when we see uh, a breakup, when we see this familiar storyline play out. There's a guy and a girl who are dating, but then something unexpected happens and someone pulls out of the relationship. Uh, and then there's that whole kind of, will they find someone else? Or uh, you kind of hope not because they were the perfect couple. Uh, no one's ever going to be as good as that person. They were the ideal couple when they were together. Many books and, and movies, they, the romances play out this way. The perfect couple, uh, then they break up. Will they get back together? And you start getting behind the original romance sometimes. You just kind of think, oh, that, that new guy or that new girl, they're just, they're just not as good as the original. Uh, and so you start to root for that perfect relationship to be restored. But often real life isn't like this. Uh, when the perfect couple breaks up, you talk to both sides, uh, and, and there's usually hurt. There's usually hard or emotional feelings, uh, you know, feelings of abandonment or hurt or shame. Sometimes they lived happily ever after is not meant to be. There's a book written uh, in the 1960s by a guy called Joshua Liebman, and it's called Hope for Man, an Optimistic Philosophy and Guide to Self-Fulfillment. Have a listen to what he says about happily ever after. It's pretty, it's pretty eye-opening, I think. And they lived happily ever after is one of the most tragic sentences in literature. It's tragic because it tells a falsehood about life and has led countless generations of people to expect something from human existence which is not possible on this fragile and perfect earth. The happy ending obsession of Western culture is both a romantic illusion and a psychological handicap, he continues. It can never be literally true that love and marriage are unblemished perfections, for any worthwhile life has its trials, its disappointments, and its burning heartaches. Yet who can compare the numbers of people who have unconsciously absorbed this and they lived happily ever after illusion in their childhood and have therefore been disappointed when life has not come up to their expectations and who secretly suffer from the jealous conviction that the other married people know a kind of bliss that is denied to them. Life is not paradise. Well, our message from Isaiah 61 and 62 is a real-life moment. It's a real-life moment where we're going to find out if they lived happily ever after can be possible. God and his people were in a relationship that broke up God's people, Israel, felt like God dumped them. They were forsaken by him. And the shame felt from this in the ancient world was very real. All the other nations would have been looking at God's people, Israel, and laughing. God has abandoned you. God broke up with you. But God will not remain silent. He will not remain silent forever. Today's passage shows us that God still responds, and he does so with love and with joy. In the lead up to Christmas, um, when we look at stories leading up in Advent, we see joy all the way through, actually. So think back in the New Testament. Uh, we're told when Jesus' mother Mary goes to visit Elizabeth that Elizabeth's baby, John the Baptist, leaps for joy in the womb. 
as joy. When angels visit the shepherds, the angel of the Lord appears and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The wise men, they follow the star in the sky, and when they see the star, the text says they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. How do we get from a breakup? How do we get from a breakup to joy? How do we get there? How do we get from a breakup to a perfect relationship? Today's passage is one of the most crucial moments in the Bible for us to see and understand how that can be possible. Today's passage is a little poem, and it's tucked away um, right near the end of Isaiah. Many of us probably have never read it before. And this poet has something amazing to say to us. This poem talks about a servant. Uh, We find out earlier in Isaiah that this servant is called the Anointed One, who, because we're on the other side of the cross, we know who this Anointed One is. We know it's Jesus. And this poem gives us insight into the joy that Jesus had in coming to earth at Christmas. We get this beautiful picture of joy. So what we're going to do together today is simply look at how the joy comes. We want to look at how the joy comes, but also how we're waiting for it. How we're waiting for that joy in all of its fullness and in all of its glory. How do we get from the, the bleakness of a breakup with God and his people to the perfect happily ever after? And we start at Isaiah 61, verses 10 and 11. So have a look, page 621 of the Blue Bibles. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations." Here's, the, here's a, 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 fore, a foresight, like a glimpse of a heartbroken Israel who is broken up with God, that there is something coming. There's joy coming. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, the poet says. My, my soul will exult in my God. Why? Because the anointed one who's going to bring this couple back together. And the anointed one is a pretty flashy dresser. Have a look at the way he dresses. Verse 10, um, the anointed one will have clothes provided for him. These particular clothes are garments of salvation. Salvation. He brings salvation. He brings robes of righteousness, like a bridegroom and like a priest. So what is the poet saying there? God is providing clothes for the anointed one to wear. The person who is coming isn't just parading the latest outfit. Uh, It's not just trying to look good. No, no, no. The clothes he brings are saving clothes. Clothes of salvation and righteousness. That's another way of saying this person is going to reflect the very heart and character of God. God is the one who provides salvation. And this person will, will reflect God. He's going to wear the clothes of God. He's going to wear salvation. He's going to bring a way to be saved. God is the one who is righteousness, and this person is wearing righteousness. Uh, We used to say this a lot back in the day. We don't say it much anymore, but we used to say that a person's clothes reflect their character. Well, this person's character 
is the heart of God. This poet says, the clothes of salvation and righteousness will be worn in two ways. So like a bridegroom would dress, or, or we would say a groom would dress, and like a priest would put on his headdress. So think about those two images. How does, a, how does a groom dress? Well, usually, formally. I think this has been dulled down a bit culturally for us. Like sometimes people get married. You know, I've seen Sydney weddings where people are married in shorts and thongs and things like that. But not traditionally, right? Traditionally, marriage is very happy, but it's serious, it's solemn. It's, it's an occasion, it's a life decision. And so the bride and groom dress to fit the occasion of a life decision. In the lead up to a wedding, people usually try and, out, try and find out what colour the, um, the, the bridal party will be wearing, because it's a serious mistake to wear the same colour. And what happens at a wedding is a big deal, it's, it's a covenant saying, I'm, I'm, we're going forever, for eternity, like for the rest of our lives, we're going to love each other. It's, it's a binding covenant. How about an Old Testament priest? Particularly the headdress, the anointed one, this person that God has chosen to wear salvation and righteousness, uh, he'll wear a headdress like a priest, which means he's going to act like a priest. Um, for a priest in the Old Testament, to dress up for your role was quite, quite a task. Um, every single thing mentioned in the Old Testament, I could tell you where, but it's very boring reading, but um, every, every time it's mentioned in the Old Testament how a priest will dress and the order for wearing what they wore, it was very careful. It was carefully and thoughtfully completed to reflect that the role is really important. You had to dress in the right way to serve in the temple. And so the groom and the priest, this anointed one, will dress themselves like this, wearing salvation, wearing righteousness, because he has a serious mission. This anointed one has a greater purpose. He's got a task. He's going to bring salvation. He's going to bring righteousness. He's going to bring healing to a broken relationship. Verse 11 adds to the joy. The Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to shoot up amongst the nations. The task that's given to the anointed one, it's going to work and people are going to see it. This servant, this anointed one, will bring righteousness and make people righteous. There's joy because God is going to restore this relationship. And notice that the anointed one understands who's in control here. It's God. The anointed one is going to bring all this about, but he's not beating his chest and saying, look how good I am. Where's his joy? In the Lord. It's in the Lord who will bring this about. He's not boasting in his abilities. He's not boasting in his clothes. The joy of the anointed one is in the Lord, the one who gives him the robes in the first place. There's so much joy from this poem that it's going to happen. And here's the cool thing. Even Jesus' mother Mary gets this. So in Luke 1, uh, verses 46 and 47, Mary starts the song of praise known as the Magnificat. And Mary actually quotes here to start her song. So Isaiah 61.10 is the beginning of her song. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. Another word for rejoice. 
My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. There's, there's Isaiah 61.10. That's the poet's words from our passage today. And Mary gets it. Young girl, poor girl, no social standing. She gets the joy. She understands the joy of the news of a Savior that she's going to give birth to. She makes the connection of the poem with what's happening in reality for her. She knows that the anointed one prophesied, the life growing within her is that anointed one. Her life was overflowing with joy because she understood that the anointed one was inside of her, that Jesus was about to begin this mission of restoration. So we're going to find out about the mission. And that's where Isaiah 62 comes in. Look at verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. That term Zion, by the way, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's a name that is given for God's people. So for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Here's the mission. The mission is commitment. For Zion's sake, for Jerusalem's sake, the anointed one will speak and act. And their commitment is not just words, it's, it's actually action. I will not keep silent, I will not be quiet until her righteousness is seen by everyone. Until it's broadcast to the world. And the broadcast is, God is committed to his people. It's such a commitment that is seen across the nations. And in verse 2, the nations do see it. The change will be as obvious as a bright light, a shining light, um, and a blazing torch. Like, that's pretty obvious. This is connected, by the way, with chapter 61, verse 10, the robes of righteousness. See the words righteousness twice in, in verse 10 and also in verse 1, and salvation twice. So the robes of righteousness will so, show such a change that it will be eye-catchingly bright. The clothes of salvation in verse 10 will show such, a, show such a change as a burning torch. And it goes back to relationship. What's being publicly committed and broadcast to the world? It's that the breakup will be fixed. God and his people are coming back together again. The breakup is coming to an end. The words of verse 2 are commitment vows. Look at verse 2. The nations shall see your righteousness, all the kings your glory, and you shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So God has not abandoned or forsaken his people forever. God's coming back. He's committed, and he's bringing his people back. Now, of course, the people, as they're reading this in Old Testament history, they know that this hasn't happened. Uh, God's people aren't there yet. They're still in exile, and they aren't sure it's going to come true, but God is publicly committing to them now. The nations will see this. The whole world is going to see this. But how is it going to come about? Look again at verse 2. A new name. God is going to sanctify his bride by giving his people a new name. That's so marriage-like, isn't it? Uh, th there's more of the marriage language to come, actually. It's very deliberate. In a very real sense, we get this in our culture, or at least we used to get this. Um, it's not as common anymore, but when people get married, 
It used to be that the bride would change her last name. And names in the Bible always mean something. And God's going to change the meaning of the name. It's going to bring a change of identity for his people. So skip verse 3 for a moment and look at verse 4. Don't wonder any, any longer about what the name change is, because here it is, verse 4. You are no longer to be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. Your land married, because the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. In the original Hebrew, uh, the words used are forsaken, desolate, my delight is in her, and married are actually names. Um, if you look at other translations, or your Bible might have some numbers next to those, and they'll tell you what the names are, um, they're actually real names. And it's hard to know what the right call is if you're, if you're reading the Bible. Should we use the actual name, or should we use the translation of the name? Because if you use the name, then we won't, we won't know what that means. But if you use the translation, you don't understand how important it is to see that there's a change of name. So it's 50-50 here. But here's the names. You will no more be termed Zuba. You will no, no more be termed Forsaken. Your land will no longer be termed Shemama, desolate, but rather in this relationship, you have a new name. In this relationship, you have a new identity and a new character that God is giving. Here it is. You will now be called Hepzibah. And Hepzibah means my delight is in her. And your land is now Beulah, married. This is the words of commitment, isn't it? No longer forsaken. But now my delight is in you. And through the poet, God speaks to say, you are no longer that. You're no longer forsaken and desolate. My people, your new name is, I delight in you. These are words of tenderness and joy and a heart that is bursting with delight. We ought not lose sight of the sense that God is passionate about his people. He loves them. The land being called married is a way to show a sense that you belong the land and the people belong to God. The relationship is restored. It will be restored. And what was once forsaken, what was once desolate, what was once in decay is restored, is reconnected, is wonderful. God is bringing his people back together for eternity. God's people were not wonderful. <laughs> Sometimes we are not wonderful. Most of the time. <laughs> um, Israel was desolate because of their sin. We are desolate because of our sin. But one day our sin will be over. Why? Because at Christmas, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, was born. God made flesh and um, made a way through his death and resurrection on the cross. That is all God's work. Every bride, you ask any bride, they, they want to look perfect on their wedding day. Have a look at how perfect God's people will look on this day. Look back at verse 3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem 
in the hand of your God. God's promise to his bride, his people, in verse 3, is that they will be a crown of beauty. So they're going to be the royal diadem. So it's not just the bride that wears something pretty. It's not just that the bride will wear a crown. The bride is the crown. The bride is the most pretty thing there. A crown and a diadem, a thing of beauty to be kept and guarded and upheld and kept in the king's hands and shown for its beauty, shown for its majesty and put on display for the world to see. The Lord's people are the signs to show that God is king. This is a royal wedding made in heaven. This is a royal wedding that will last forever. It's God taking his people and making them the crown. They are exciting words, actually. If you let them sink in, they're pretty exciting. For a people in exile, for a people who are in, not in their homeland, this is a huge and even an emotional promise. I'm sure it made many shed tears. But it's not over yet. There's more. Verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the, the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. These are God's words for his people. So if you belong to Jesus, these words are for you. Just as the groom rejoices over his bride, so shall God rejoice over you. There is real joy in this relationship between God and his people, between the groom and the bride, between the couple that were broken up to be back together. When circumstances make you think or feel not this way, when, when circumstances make you feel forsaken or abandoned, hear the whisper from the other side of the bed. My delight is in you. God accepts you and rejoices over his people like a groom over his new bride. This could not be more heartfelt. You have a joyful God who rejoices over you. It is absolutely remarkable, isn't it, that Mary got this, that Mary quotes these verses. A young woman pregnant with Jesus and she rejoices. She might not see the whole picture, but she remembers the joyful God who keeps his promises and is bringing the anointed one who will bring all of this, who will make it all happen. She knows joy is coming. And her soul rejoices, not because she's being given a mission, not because she's being given a task, but because she knows the mission of her son, her anointed one. And it's coming. And it's almost here. This poem from Isaiah is a prophetic poem. But when Jesus enters the picture, it's not poetry anymore. It's real. When Jesus comes, poetry becomes history. The anointed one, Jesus Christ the Messiah, comes, and he comes with joy. And he's clothed in salvation and righteousness. Have a look at what Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 says. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen to this. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy 
that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the joy that Jesus had when he went to the cross. And as he did, he took the shame and the scorn of the cross. He despised the same. He looked at it and said, that's my joy. It's my joy to endure the cross. Because in doing so, I'm making a way for God's people to come back together. To have a name. No more forsaken. No more desolate. But my delight is in you. The cross is nothing compared to the joy it was to endure the cross for you. So we've got a couple of thoughts to finish. I think it's really easy to feel distant from this, especially in day-to-day life and in the lead-up to Christmas. We, we all have things that we go through around Christmas time. Uh, we have things that we battle. Some of us can feel hopeless. Some of us are just tired. Some of us feel abandoned. Sometimes we feel that God is silent. Just like when the poet wrote this, God was silence. We can feel that the world's voice is larger. But remember that if you belong to Jesus, you have a new name. So it's not forsaken. It's my delight in you. The other thought is this. God seeks you. So you actually don't have anything to do with this. God sought you out. God gives you a new name. He redeems you to himself. And those who he seeks out, he makes holy and righteous. We're nothing until God changes us. So if you're not a Christian, do you want a new name? Are you ready for a new name? Are you sick of being forsaken? Because your name could be God's delight. But if you are a Christian today, the question is different. Are you ready for the wedding? This prophecy is only half completed. Jesus came and he started the process. But one day the nations are going to see your righteousness. One day the nations are going to see your salvation. So are you ready? We need to be ready. Because guess what? The groom's coming. So don't be unprepared. His words for you are, my delight is in you. So let this give you joy as we wait for his return. Why don't we pray? Father, as we get closer and closer to Christmas and we see this beautiful text from Isaiah, more and more pieces fit together as to why Advent is such a meaningful time, we pray that you would fill us with a great sense of joy, joy with what you've done in this whole plan in bringing Jesus to earth, the anointed one who brings righteousness and salvation, and joy that children of God have a name not forsaken, but God delighting in us. Father, we long for your return. We long for where nations will see your righteousness. So come, Lord Jesus. We pray this for our sake and your glory. Amen.